I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Good morning once again, everybody. I'm Jamie Trecker, and I'm joined here in the studio as always by Jeremy Kitchen and Michael Sack. This show is being taped live on May 21st, 2017, and we have a special guest in tonight, the author of the book Identity Unknown from Bloomsbury Press, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists. Donna Seaman is sitting directly across from me. Welcome to our show, Donna. Oh, thank you so much. want to pitch it over to Jeremy to start off and talk a little bit about this book. This is a very elegant look at seven women artists, something that we're actually very... Uh, I'm personally also very interested because my mother is a practicing artist, has been for 35 years. And one of the things that you started talking about was the Gorilla Girls takeover in 1985. I remember that very well from being a freshman in college. That was something that was <laughs> the hot talk of the Syracuse University painting program. But, Jeremy, let's pitch it over to you because you started with a specific artist in this book. And, and let's just kick it off and let's get going with a very interesting subject here today. Thanks, Jamie. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Donna. Thanks for being on the show. Um, the first artist we're going to talk about today is uh, Gertrude Abercrombie, who was a Chicago painter. Very interesting life story. She hung out with a lot of the jazz greats, uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. Um, she was married to a, uh, a con named Frank Sandiford, is mm-hmm, that correct? That's right. Who wrote a book um, about prison life under the pen name Paul Wells, is that correct also? It was Paul Watkins. Watkins? Yeah. Actually, bought that on eight books <laughs> after reading your book. Yeah, I have a paperback copy at I home. I did too with that great cover. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And, and what was interesting about that book, and we're not going to talk a lot about him, but it was a very graphic look at prison life. And there wasn't a lot of, um, it was very graphic sexually and it was very violent for the time, correct? Pretty shocking, uh, candid about homosexual sex and uh, prison sexuality. I was really taken with it, actually. It seemed very gutsy. It's in my, uh, it's in my pile to read. So those of you who don't know, uh, Donna is the editor of Booklist, which is basically the collection Bible for libraries, if you wonder why and how us librarians you know, decide what to purchase for our collections. We, we use um, resources like Booklist and Library Journal. No, no, it's a dart and a dartboard, I thought. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> okay, yeah, all, yeah. Right. all right. And um, we also, um, you know, this is probably not super exciting for everybody, but, you know, we read a lot of blogs and do databases, at least good librarians do. So I'm excited to have Donna on. So the first thing I wanted to ask you in regards to the book is, you know, I try to do some re- research on Gertrude. There's very little, right. very little information <laughs> about her, which is why you wrote the book. Um, did you, where did you start out with the sources? That's one thing I want to know. And also, how did you come up with this particular list? Well, uh, the list... So to start with Gertrude, I just happened to see one of her little paintings. You know, every so often the Art Institute would hang one up, or or I may have seen it in a gallery. And, you know, almost everyone who sees these paintings thinks, who is this woman? Where did these paintings come from? And I immediately realized that, that there was very little information. And I got very lucky, having been part of the art world, um, to have a, find a catalog from the Illinois State Museum retrospective exhibit from 1990. And that was a big source of mine. The other big source, and um, you know, I love that you're a librarian and that we're all big readers here because research is the real joy of writing, I believe. And um, I discovered the great wealth of the um, Archives of American Art, which is part of the Smithsonian Institute, which makes me so proud to be an American because in our better times, uh, we digitize all these papers that were donated to the Smithsonian. They're online, they're accessible to everyone. 
And uh, you know that's a real democratic resource and truly exciting. Don Baum, who was a uh, Chicago artist and um, really helped start the Harry Who and the Chicago Images, he was a good friend with Gertrude. You mentioned her and her jazz buddies. Uh, he went to a lot of those parties and became her executor and just gave everything to the Smithsonian. So I sat late at night with boxes of microfilm and looked through it, which is where I found a lot of the materials for Gertrude. Um, so the seven artists in this book are artists whose, love, whose work at some point in my life I found out about and really fell in love with. And they all achieved some success, but then sort of disappeared from the art history record. And that bothered me. So that's the impetus. We actually have a reading uh, from this section uh, of Gertrude Abercrombie. Why don't we play it and we'll get back because that's, I'd like to pick up on why they disappeared. But first, here are the words of Donna Seaman, as always read by the WLPN Voice of God. Abercrombie met Llewellyn Jones, literary critic for the Chicago Post, at the mammoth 300 Artists Strong Outdoor Art Fair held in Grant Park along Lake Michigan in 1933. He, in turn, introduced her to writer Thornton Wilder, who was teaching at the University of Chicago. Wilder had received his first Pulitzer Prize for The Bridge of San Luis Rey and went on to win two more for his now-classic plays Our Town and The Skin of Our Teeth. Wilder met the avant-garde expat writer Gertrude Stein in 1934, when she returned to the States in triumph after her clever memoir, The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, became an international bestseller and her only commercial success. Stein and Wilder joined forces and Gertrude met Gertrude in 1935, when Amber Crombie attended one of their joint lectures at the University of Chicago. Surely she knew about, and perhaps even dreamed of emulating, Stein's enormously influential Paris Salon, where Stein reigned as the stalwart champion of such revolutionary painters as Pablo Picasso and Henry Matisse, as well as such young expat writers as Ernest Hemingway and Sherwood Anderson, both with Chicago connections. And that was a reading from Donna Siemens' Identity Unknown. Let's talk about why Gertrude Abercrombie, however, disappeared off the art history radar, because she was a integral part of a Chicago art scene at a pivotal time for Chicago arts. And many of the artists, in fact, you talk about in this book, were widely seen in their circles, widely talked about, widely exhibited, and widely remarked upon. And yet, as you mentioned, our own Art Institute here in Chicago rarely displays her work. Why is that? Well, you know, it's uh, even after writing this book, it's still a hard question to answer. I think it has to do with, you know, who tells the stories. So Gertrude never achieved a national reputation. She tried New York. She was out of step with the New York art world. Um, by the time abstract expressionism was, you know, raging, and um, she was still making her spooky figurative paintings, um, her prairie landscapes, her very personal works just never expanded as a national, international consciousness. Um, I was able to find lots of local coverage of her when she had shows and she exhibited constantly, but um, those things all just fade away. I mean, there was no um, critic that started including her in histories of American art. I think part of um, Gertrude's problem was being a Midwesterner. You know, there's still scorn in New York for Chicago even, which I just find incredible, and I have been a recipient of that attitude myself. Um, so, you know, we keep pushing. I, it's a big country. It's a country full of artists, and many are overlooked, men as well as women. Gertrude's life really went into decline um, in her later years. She um, had a drinking problem, um, a lot of health problems, became very isolated, and um, 
she had a retrospective at the Hyde Park Art Center in the last year of her life, which was 1977. And after that, silence. People own her work. I have been doing events about my book and meeting people who come up and say to me, I own an Abercrombie. Maybe I should have it appraised. <laughs> you know, this <laughs> sort of attitude that these were just these funny little works. And, of course, they're invaluable and of, of great um, power. And so it, it was really meaningful to me to be able to write about her and try to bring her to a different uh, world, a different audience. I do want to – you raise an interesting point that it is difficult – in the United States if you're not shown in New York City or you're not shown in LA now, I guess LA would be the other place, to achieve national consciousness. But you also said something without actually saying it, which I think is very interesting, was that no critic actually embraced her. And many of the critics at that point in time, and still to this day, I can only think of maybe a handful, the critics were men. And yes. the male critics tended to only champion male artists, and particularly in that period, very macho artists. There was the kind of the cult of the artists. You think of Jackson Pollock, uh, Yves Klein, you, you know, Marcel Duchamp. There was a machismo and this idea that painting was a transformative macho thing. Very few artists, and you, you mentioned a couple of the female artists that did break through. They were decidedly unmacho. George O'Keefe, Mary Cassatt. Um, those people really never... Uh, they achieved things in the art world outside of that critical sphere simply by either being around long enough that people realized they were geniuses or by uh, unfortunately being taken under the wing of somebody like a Lee Krasner. Mm -hmm. And the, that glory, uh, some people say, well, that Lee Krasner got reflected glory, when in reality Lee Krasner was actually an extremely talented artist on her own and, and maybe was survive. overshadowed <laughs> by, you know what I'm saying? So can we talk a little bit about that? I mean, I know it's unusual to have, you know, three men sitting here talking about <laughs> women, women being overlooked in, in the arts, but... Uh, <laughs> If we could talk a little bit about that, because I think it's a very important point that isn't talked about, uh, frankly, enough. I don't think people realize that it's very difficult for female artists to break through. Well, I wanted to touch on that and also the Chicago aspect. Uh, we talk about this on the show all the time. There's actually one other thing I want to mention, too. And When Donna was talking about sources, you know, the Smithsonian is a great source to, to learn the truth or, or to get factual information. But we live in a time and we bring this up over and over again. It's very hard to distinguish what is real and what is not, especially in the media. And I just want to mention that you know, a good place to find out is at your library or to talk to people that are outside of your political scope. Um, but the amount of information that comes out these days, it's very difficult to sort out what mm -hmm. is right and what's wrong. But the other thing I want to mention is I love surrealism and magical realism in art, which um, Gertrude was, you know, she was placed under that moniker. Although some of her other works, they weren't all. Um, I, I saw one called Self-Portrait of My Sister <laughs> that was in a, um, a Chicago art book that I actually had at the library. And But I think Chicago, being a woman and being from Chicago, it's like strike one and strike two, especially during those times. Chicago's always been, you know, we have one of the best art schools in the country here, and people always leave for New York. And I'm always like, why? You know, why yeah, well, stay here you know and, and people do and there are successful artists um, i think of tony fitzpatrick is mm -hmm. one um and there's others and there's successful writers and you know i want that to change but you know tying into that i just you know i, I have to agree with what jamie said you know she had and you know she was writing in the 40s and, oh, excuse me she was painting in the 40s <laughs> and 50s up into the 70s correct and correct. um but, I mean, so you guys raised many really interesting points. Um, and um, I was laughing when you mentioned that painting because self-portrait of 
my sister. Gertrude did not have a sister, so there is a little element of surrealism in there. I mean, she was a profoundly psychological painter. I did not read that, so yes. I was like, oh, this is her sister. And there's so, no okay. sister. Well, that maybe so it is surrealism. That's a real key to Gertrude Abercrombie. She was incredibly witty, darkly funny, uh, sardonic even. And um, had a terrible, ugly duckling complex, uh, thanks to her beautiful, uh, cold-hearted mother. Uh, and so th- her paintings are so interesting because um, she's painting against the tide of abstract expression and against the tide of pop art um, and minimalism. She's painting her life. Uh, she's painting self-portraits. Um, she accepted the term surrealism for herself because, as she put it in her funky, jazzy way, um, really she was a realist, but she didn't much like realism, so she went to <laughs> surrealism. Um, and so it's true about art critics um, that she had those two strikes against her, that she was a woman, that she was a, a figurative artist in a time that was valuing abstract art, um, especially in New York. Um, that she wasn't, that she, I mean, she was pretty tough in her own way. Um, she had those salons we were talking about. She went against, you know, um, we all love Chicago, but it was an incredibly segregated city, especially in the 40s when it was really jazz heyday. And Gertrude opened her home to jazz musicians and to black friends. That was not done, even um, in Hyde Park, where she was in those years. Um, She was remembered as queen of Bohemia because she had these huge open parties and welcomed everyone, students from UFC, um, jazz musicians traveling through, people who lived here. And she tells amazing stories about these gatherings. She also played the piano. Uh, so she was right there with them. Uh, jazz musicians wrote songs in tribute to her. Uh, so she led this incredibly dynamic life that you know art critics just couldn't always relate to. I mean, she wasn't. She was sort of the opposite of like the, the pure myth that surrounds Georgia O'Keeffe, for instance, because she was not out in the desert. She wasn't like an art nun. She was like a party woman, and yeah. uh, that just clutters up the whole idea of an artist, I think. Well, that that leads me to a question. I don't know the answer. Maybe you guys do, but were the critics a lot more conservative and stodgy, like back in the well, old days? or No, but um, they weren't, but they were mostly men. And they were really, in those years, campaigning for abstract expressionism and that machismo that Jay was I guess about. if you have that machismo, then it's, you know, the woman's place is in the kitchen and yeah. not having jazz parties with Dizzy Gillespie. Well, right. race yeah. was a big issue, though. Race was still an issue race for critics. Race was a huge issue. I mean, yeah. you think about the— Race ex- is still an issue now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. but I mean, even—it's much more—that uh, m- would have been much more prevalent in the—, in the popular media. I mean, the, the idea of blacks and whites mixing even among the Paris salons and that American expat community, that was that was forbidden. You'd, you'd read the New York Times and, and the New York Times would still be extremely condescending right through the 60s, frankly, in, in anything to do with uh, uh, African-American arts or, or any sort of supposed influence on that. They, I mean, you got to remember the New York Times, you know, a paper of record in this country did not support the civil rights movement until around 1967 mm-hmm. or 1968, I believe, after the, the death of Martin Luther King, when it became apparent that you know something had to change they they were very dismissive of, of anything to do with kind of uh, what they would call native arts or, or uh, a folk art you know I mean there, there's and that does that's not necessarily to do with with women or men either that was a whole dismissiveness toward uh, indigenous art forms in this Other country cultures yeah I mean they they did not you know it's interesting today to see the New York Times not to go too deep into this they have a jazz beat reporter mm-hmm. in Nate Chinan about 30 years after jazz, you know, <laughs> hit the scene. So, uh, you know, 
it shows you how much race colored editorial decisions at major institutions that would have been uh, at least in the middle brow level setting the tone. Uh, I think the only magazine that I can think of that did cover African-American events was The New Yorker. Uh, Time Life certainly did not. I know The New Yorker did. Um, Collier's I know didn't. But all these things would have filtered down and would have colored their perception of what an artist was doing or what a writer was doing. Exactly. I also wanted to mention that we can't talk about Gertrude Amicron without talking about James Purdy. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And can you tell me the name of his book? It's escaping me as Gertrude in the title. Uh, Um. Gertrude of Stony Island. Gertrude of Stony Island, which was based on? Gertrude Abercrombie. James Purdy showed up to attend the University of Chicago. Brilliant underground kind of writer. Um, Uh, Literally unheard of, but he's starting to have a little bit of a resurgence again. Thanks in part to John Waters, who um, wrote an introduction to uh, James Purdy's collected stories a couple of years ago. Did not know Um, that. A collection of stories John Waters um, described as a box of poisonous chocolates, which to him was a big compliment. (laughs) Did you you quote that in your book? I I remember that quote. I can't resist that. Yeah, that's a great one. Being a John Waters fan. So, Jane... um, James Purdy was such a character, um, brilliant, gay, and out in the 40s and 30s, bravely so. Also really interested in African-American culture. Um, immediately made his way to Gertrude's place because he knew he would be welcomed on all counts. They became very close friends. Um, and uh, he even babysat for her daughter. <laughs> and um, he paid her back, unfortunately, with these rather cruel portraits in his That's novels. Right, yeah. <laughs> One novel called Malcolm. Um and they're just—they were painful to read. I mean, I've always really enjoyed James Purdy's work. It, they're very edgy, very dark, quite daring, really radical for his time, as she was. Um, she, in her part, for saying that a woman's life is a legitimate subject for fine art. He, for saying, I can write about gay characters, and I will. And um, he was not published in the United States for many years. He was published in England. Edith Sitwell became one of his champions in England. Um, people like Susan Sontag took him up here eventually. Um, he's a fascinating character. Hurt Gertrude to the quick. I mean, really, um, it's just so painful for her. But those books are absolutely fascinating now to read. Can we? Um, can you talk a little bit about Don Baum? You had mentioned him, and he'll pop up yeah. <clears throat> later in the book as well. Don Baum was, you know, sort of did everything. He himself was an artist, really interesting sculptor. Did these collaged works of using dolls and dollhouses. Um, he was also kind of an art impresario, um, putting together shows at the Hyde Park Art Center. He really put that place on the map as a place for innovative shows. Um, was very interested in all the painters working. A lot of um, Chicago's Harry Who group, um, which is Jim Nutt and Carl Worsom and. Um, and also the Chicago Images were associated with the School of the Art Institute. He himself was a teacher. He taught at Roosevelt University. Um, and he was um, also uh, wrote well. He was just sort of this great arts advocate and became a real buddy of Gertrude's. And, and there's some funny quotes where he says he's lucky he's still alive after drinking all that bad sherry at Well, I was going to say he, he outlived <laughs> oh, yes. several well, of he these was women. Younger. And he seems like that potential link to the next generation and... Definitely. And I guess I'm wondering what happened. He, um, yeah, so the other artist in my book who he knew well and uh, worked a lot with was Christina Ramberg, who was at the School of the Art Institute, one of the Chicago Imagists. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, Don did a lot. He was honored. Um, you know, Elmhurst College has a, a tremendous art collection of Chicago imagists and Harry Hugh painters in their library, actually. And um, they honored him before he died for his role in Chicago art. So, you know, he won't be forgotten. He uh, was one of the Chicago people that did a oral history for the uh, Smithsonian as part of the Archives of American Art and tells amazing stories in there. Um, so he was very effective. Um, Dennis Adrian was an art critic in Chicago who also really advocated for women artists. You know, it's interesting in Chicago um, that women artists really were treated better here than in New York. I mean, they were always part of these groups. And um, I came across the interviews and discussions where people said, yeah, you know, and in part in the Harry Who group um, and the Chicago Images, there were a lot of married couples that were both artists, um, like Jim Nutt and Gladys Nielsen, Christina Ramberg and Phil Hansen. So there was no hierarchy there. They were all equal. The women would not put up with anything different. Um, and, and there wasn't that sort of macho attitude as in New York. So it, you know, an underappreciated aspect of Chicago, yet another one of Chicago art world, I would say, is, is that equality between the gender in our work and, and the complete inclusion of gay artists always from the get-go. Um, I think there's an interesting tie into that, too. Even, you know, with the... I, I book punk shows here in Chicago, and we have a very um, open community. Even in the hardcore bands, there's gay kids, there's black kids, there's Hispanic kids. I mean, there's... a uh, and a lot of women, a lot of yeah. the bands have women. That's and punk. I think Chicago, um, although, you know, we live in a, it's a segregated, tough, weird city. <laughs> Especially think, this neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> I think the art community has always kind of embraced diversity, you know, even when everything else is yes, right. segregated and, and challenging. So, That's yeah. right. That's one of the roles artists do in society. Well, speaking of Christina Remberg, this is a good point to uh, actually let's uh, hear again from Donna Seaman as read by Shanna Van Volt. Uh, and we'll be back in just two minutes. In January 1979, the Chicago Public Library Cultural Center, an architectural jewel on Michigan Avenue, mounted The Art of Playboy, an exhibit that celebrated the hometown magazine's 25th anniversary. In the Chicago Sun-Times Review, David Elliott expresses surprise at how varied the artwork is. He notes that Playboy's art director, quote, has been a godsend to Chicago artists, and he singles out Romberg's illustrations for Durrell and Graves' poems displayed in large reproductions. Elliot offers this startling assessment. Christina Romberg's love lines may be the kinkiest, oozingest with sin thing ever to appear in Playboy. In her 1969-1970 journal, Romberg wrote, For a while I've been thinking about some paintings I'd like to make, but I've tried to ignore the thoughts because my paintings sound so sick. An item in the newspaper brought my latent desires to the fore once again. The headline was something to this effect. Semi-invalid, drops cigarette to lap, dies in fire. The father of the victim tried unsuccessfully to put out the burning clothing with water. Another article a few months ago also fascinated me. It was on the obituary page and told of a nun participating in a celebration and bonfire who suddenly took off her sweater and shoes and leapt into the flames. Observers said she had been in good spirits and could supply no motive. The nun was 43. Romberg made a little sketch of this baffling and horrific scene. And that was another reading from Identity Unknown by Donna Seaman. This one on Christina Ramberg, a Chicago artist. Mike, take it away. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jamie. And uh, thanks for coming on the show, Donna. Um, 
Christina went to school at the Art Institute, correct? That's right, School of the Art Institute. In the 60s or 70s? Uh, 60s, yes. Very tall. <laughs> she was. I don't want to say overbearing. She didn't seem oh, like she no. had that personality. Right. But she had presence. She had presence. <laughs> and um, as you heard from that reading, she did some illustrations for Playboy, Playboy stories yeah. and, and poems. And some of the some of the writers are are big timers. Lawrence yeah. Durrell, Robert Graves, Joyce Carol Oates. Um, Including your producer. I, I had published in Playboy. See no that? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, they paid a lot of, they paid they a lot paid of money. They paid well, yes. They paid very well, yes. <laughs> yeah, there was an art director there for a while who was very connected to the um, Harry Hugh and Chicago Images group, and he got his friends gigs there, and they, you know, really helped these artists out. And, you know, it was perfect for Christina, who, um, as you say, was a, a very tall woman, very... Um, inspired by the conflicted body image um, impressions that women have, especially and including herself about herself. And um, she painted some of her early works are these very sexy, kind of almost sort of S&M looking mm-hmm. um, images. And her um, pairing with Playboy was so interesting to me. It was kind of a perfect, but also like a covert infiltration, kind of well, like yeah. a spy in the house of sexism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it came in under uh, Hefner's nose. <laughs> exactly. Um, you mentioned the images mm-hmm. earlier, and and Ramberg is is an artist who's grouped in with that group, but that wasn't a self-proclaimed uh, title, oh, right? That was right. That was kind of Don Baum saying, "Oh, was it? Yes, I'm going to give you guys a show, and let, I think you're the Chicago Imagists." <laughs> and there was a critic too, right? Uh, Franz. Yes, Franz Schultz. Schultz. Was it? Schultz yeah. or Schultz? Who wrote about um, wrote about that um, seminal show? Um, at the Hyde Park Art Center, and uh, yeah, he also you, used that term. Can you talk about what defined them, at least sure. in, um, in the critics' minds and Don Baum's minds? Yes. I mean, they were imagists in that they were uh, did representative works, but they were very interpretive impressions of the body. Um, it was Christina Ramberg, uh, Roger Brown, you remember his paintings, lots of cuts. So, um, you know, there were identifiable aspects to these works, but they were pushed. You know, there's a lot of surrealism in Chicago art. Um, you know, Gertrude was one, uh, the Harry Who with Jim Nutt with those wild figures, you know, quite obscene in many ways. Um, a real uh, kind of wicked sense of humor, um, both the Chicago images and the Harry Who had. Um, images that uh, really pushed our um, sense of the body and of what it means to be human. They love things like uh, pulp magazines and advertisements, and, you know, they really drew on pop culture. Um, Christina was fascinated by things like the Sears catalog. So it's imagery that um, takes sort of commercial and really underground works and, and turns them into fine art. Um, but they were all, especially uh, Christina, too, you know, highly skilled artists. I mean, they could do really traditional work, too. And so their um, improvisations on that were just full of uh, insight into the human condition, into human conflict, uh, especially about being human. If you're, um, if you're in your 20-somethings now and you look at some of Ramberg's early paintings, I can't think of the title. The one, with, it's just the midsection. She did a lot of paintings with the head not showing. Oh, she never painted faces. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a woman in like uh, well, stockings, yeah. garter. Yeah, well, the, uh, the one from 1971. Yeah, but I can't remember the name. The, of it. Uh, um, well, there's. I uh, feel like that wouldn't be shocking now. To to hermetic indecision. Is that oh, are you talking about these these torsos? Oh no no, no, no it's the first one in the section. Like that waiting lady. You can't tell if she's taking off her shirt or, right. or putting it on. I love that painting. 
and um, um, she painted a whole series of these kind of lingerie paintings that have very S&M aspects to them. So they're um, bustiers and, and lace and um, sort of, in, there's one called um, Waiting Lady where she's sort of bent over and, you know, it looks like she's about to be attacked. And yeah, Black Widow. Black Widow. Black Widow. Um, and that's because they used to call, well, they still call them, those kind of chemise are called Merry Widows. Well, I remember look, I looked at the, uh, the plate, the uh, image in the book and I thought, hmm, that's nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but then I was reading and I realized how how scandalous it it could have been. Not not that it was a scandal back then, but it really. Well, it, it, it was startling. I mean, okay. it was surprising because you think of those images um, as for men. You know, these are images for men about women being sexy. And Christina Ramberg is, to my eyes, is saying these are supposed to make women vulnerable in some way, but really they make them powerful. And when she painted women in those outfits, those leather bustiers that push up your breasts and cinch in your waist, you know, these were women warriors. These are almost like armor. And her women stand really tall. Even the woman in uh, Waiting Lady who's bent over as though she's going to be, you know, mistreated in some way. Um, there's something about that pose even that's saying, I can take this. I'm inviting you to do this and I'm in control here not you that's a good place to stop for a second as we do have to take a break and remind everybody that you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio we're going to be right back after the break with Donna Seaman the author of Identity Unknown and we're going to talk more about these kind of Wonder Woman poses I suppose <laughs> maybe we'll get into the new book on her we'll be right back <laughs> And we're back. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. This is I-94 Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. And we are here with Donna Seaman, the author of Identity Unknown. Donna, I want to open this segment with a question for you in your writing process. Where do you get all your adjectives? Because <laughs> um, They come from a bank, don't you know that? Yeah. <laughs> what we do is us writers send away, and you get this little package in the mail, and then you sprinkle it over your keyboard. I ask for them for presents at birthdays. <laughs> I can imagine, but I, what do, you, do you have like the most abused thesaurus oh, on the planet, or I do, you know, it's or do you just have a crazy extensive vocabulary? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, I've been both um, criticized and I guess praised for for my vocabulary. I love language. I mean, I just spent hours reading the dictionary, and yes, I use a thesaurus, although it's thesaurus has to be balanced with a dictionary. You really need to know why you're using a word, not just because you like the way it looks or sounds. Um, I feel very strongly about using um, lots of words and making use of the English language. You know, for a long time, there's been this real minimalist attitude about language. You know, it's the Hemingway thing. You know, Orwell too. Yeah. Or and, you know, I get that. And I try to, I want to write clearly and concretely, of course. But, you know, I believe in diversity all kinds of diversity. And um, the way things stay diverse and vital is when you use them and recognize them. So we need biodiversity, we need social diversity, you need diversity of language. We have an impoverished sense of English anymore. It's all swearing and repetitive words. Um, you know, people are losing the nuances that you find in adjectives. And I think if they're used precisely and deliberately, as I tried really hard to do in this book, they add a lot, especially when you're trying to describe Visual things. I have lots of pictures in my book, but not all pictures. I couldn't reproduce everything. I also wanted people to be able to imagine the worlds that these artists were in. So I really tried to make use of all the colors in English language, just the way a painter makes use of all the possible tones and shades and colors she can on her palette. Like well, you actually did a good job. Mike and I were in the car one time, and I was reading some of your descriptions to him, and like there was sparkling and you know just this 
these words that you might not normally use in a conversation. I also wanted to add, if someone is criticizing you from their vocabulary, well, we will beat them up. Yes. That's, I mean, <laughs> Thank you. come on, this is 2017. People don't know how to speak anymore. They oh, don't know how to write anymore. Or read, I mean, or read, enjoy you know, read it. intellectually or read for facts. So if you're criticizing Donna for vocabulary, I'm sorry, boo-hoo. <laughs> Are, are, you, are you a big you. crossword fan, Donna? I, you know, not really. Really? It's like you yeah. kill a crossword. Thank puzzle. you. Scrabble well, every, crossword. Yeah, Scrabble, I'm, I'm Oh, you're a good bad. Scrabble. Yeah. Okay. It's um, either, I find it's either Scrabble or crosswords. Yeah. The thing with Scrabble is those, you get these people and they know all the two-letter words yeah, and three-letter words and they sit there yeah. and just slap them down. That's like Scrabble that's for scoring. Yeah. That's Scrabble for scoring. I know a guy who's actually a Scrabble champion who is who's excellent at that, but like the Scrabble value, I'm a big crossword fan. So yeah. there is a Scrabble component of doing crosswords. And it's, it all ba- is based around your knowledge of esoteric words and how they fit in. Someday, when I have more time, I would do cross- I was on a plane not too long ago, and a guy was doing a crossword next to me. And for some reason, he kept turning to me, like, expecting me to know answers. And I did. <laughs> and that was weird. <laughs> I'm like, what five like, am I giving up? Of book list. <laughs> which, which, which crossword was it? Um, I can't remember. Maybe it was the New York Times. Okay. Have newspaper. you done one of those competitions, Jamie? Are you one of those? You know, I, I'm not. I've created crosswords and I do crosswords. Ooh. I'm not fast enough to do uh, competitions. There's only actually the, the truth is there's only like seven or eight guys in the world who are legitimately fast, fast. enough to win competitions. That's a trick. Um, I'm very. I can do a crossword like a daily New York Times crossword in under five minutes. <gasps> but uh, oh my you know. God. That's that not that's not competition time. Competition time is closer to like a minute and a half. Whoa. I think my fastest time on a crossword is around ninety seconds. I can do I can do a uh, seventy two word grade in about ninety seconds if I get a clean one on a you know, Monday or Wednesday level, which is about medium level. I'm Saturday impressed. crossword takes me about a couple of cups of coffee at breakfast. Listeners will verify after the show and update you next week. <laughs> well, they can. Mike and I trashed our brains in our 20s and 30s, so we yeah, can't I did do a little of that crossword. Even if you gave me all the answers beforehand, I don't think I could finish <laughs> I don't think in 90 so. seconds. It's, you know, it, crosswords are strange. My dad d- did them, and that's how I got into them growing up. It's something that's kind of repetitive knowledge because yeah, so much of a crossword is crossword ease, and then it's general knowledge that yeah, you have see, to fill I haven't in gotten and learn. That. You know yeah. who loved puzzles and, and created them herself was Gertrude Abercrombie. Yes, and that she was very interesting. Yeah. totally into them. She knew acrostics and all that stuff. She yeah. loved wordplay. She kept these hilarious journals of um, signs that had misspellings or used yeah. the wrong word. She loved language, actually. Well, when I was reading, I thought she would be really cool to hang out with, except that she was a drunk and yeah. that would have yeah. made it a little more challenging. Sad. There's a, there's a passage I wanted to read real quick from the Ramberg section. Um, and having lived in Chicago for almost a decade, it made my chest a little warm. So Aww. I just wanted to read this real quick. Uh, the city's artists did not sequester, sequester themselves and repurpose lofts in an artist enclave as their New York peers did. Chicago artists lived in the neighborhoods next to plumbers, teachers, policemen, nurses, waiters, taxicab drivers, parents, and bums, while making art in spare bedrooms, cramped back porches, whatever space they could claim. Art was life. And the Chicago imagists were sober and disciplined, unlike New York's notoriously hard-drinking, combative, dramatic, self-destructive, abstract expressionists, though Ramberg did have one known addiction, candy bars. And I, you know what? I just wanted to say something about that, too. I think one of the things about uh, most people in Chicago, rich kids moved to New York, middle class kids and poor kids moved to Chicago <laughs> or are from here. So we have to work for a living. That's and that's right. part of the thing. So if you're working two jobs and you're an artist, you're not out like trashing the bars at night. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I know it's a little bit generalization, 
But I think this town has a different work ethic as far as, um, you know, art and, and music and things like that, because most people have jobs. Well, Chicago, for me, made the idea of an artist, of being an artist, of knowing them approachable. Because I had always thought, growing up, I thought of it in those New York terms where everything was excessive and you had to have absolutely zero inhibitions. And um, Chicago really just changed the way I looked at art. Thanks for reading that passage. You know, that was one of those moments in writing where, you know, things just become clear for you. I mean, I just really kept thinking about that. And of course, you know, I'm actually from New York. I love New York. And um, but having come here and, you know, immediately fell in love with Chicago history and Chicago writers and Chicago art and, you know, really noticing that difference and, you know, just sort of the lack of arrogance, too, that, that goes with, I mean, there were profoundly creative people in the city who were not, like, bragging about it. They're just doing the work, as you say, because we all have to work. And um, I think that, you know, is especially important now to look at and value. I mean, we're so sick of all celebrity culture. And then you find out that really meaningful things are going on all over the place that are not getting light shed on them. And I think to do that on a show like this is just so meaningful. Well, sometimes that's what drives me crazy about the publishing industry. You know, I know people that are struggling to get things published. And then, you know, they'll give Snooki from Jersey Shore a $2 million (laughs) book contract. You know, it's like, this is what, this is our... Our, you know, our, our literary output, yeah. it's snooky. You know, and there's, <laughs> you could have probably signed like 20, you know, small writers that, you know, knock out a Real paperback writers. or something. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It, it boggles my mind, the celebrity culture in this country and how we do not appreciate the arts. I mean, you watch any foreign film, you read any book in translation, their government funds a lot of it. You know, it, uh, Open Letter Press, Delkey. They get grants from the governments of other countries because right. they want yeah. their art promoted. They, and they publish things And what do we promote? Like Fast and Furious 8. And I'm not, you know, if yep. you like that stuff, <laughs> great. But it's, you know, it's... But we have plenty of that. Yes. More than enough. We do have that. Yeah. You know, going back to New York, it's interesting because I'm also a transplant from there to here. The gallery scene in New York is also very, very different than mm-hmm. in oh, this yeah. city. In New York, it is a very connected environment and it's very financially driven. I would say here you do have a separate kind of gallery row uh, in the near west loop Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of small galleries such as the ones we're sitting in which is all word of mouth. It is all public. It is all show your art. uh, Art shows created by other artists and that's really disappeared from New York City. I think that, Well, from Manhattan. I mean, well, there's plenty else. It's a big city. There's it's a big city, but, but, but you're right. it's disappeared from, certainly from Brooklyn as well yeah. now. I mean, yeah, I think so, if you're yeah. going to show in, in Astoria, okay, that's, yeah. that's fine. But <laughs> if we're talking about the locus of, of art and what people think of in terms of the New York right. art community, we have to be frank. It is now a highly moneyed, highly capitalist system in New York City. And it's not that way yet here. And it's becoming that way in L.A. L.A. has just become overwashed by money where it used to be very small galleries in the barrio showing openly to anybody. And now people are protesting having art galleries coming in because they see it as a harbinger of gentrification. And they're right in Los Angeles. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that's that's an important point that goes to kind of what you were talking about uh, in – you know, why Christina's work resonated here and didn't necessarily resonate elsewhere. She was very well nurtured by a community that wanted to hold her up and see her as an equal. The other communities uh, are much more dog-eat-dog and don't necessarily have anyone's interest but capitalism. No, it's true. I mean, the Chicago galleries, too, there were a lot of co-op galleries here and women's co-op galleries, Artemisia Gallery, for instance. Um, So that 
and, and you know, it's like that in the literary world in Chicago, too, and the music world, and the theater world. There's a lot more mutual support here. Um, you know, yes, money always matters. We all need it to survive. But there's just a lot more camaraderie and support, and I really noticed that. Uh, and that continues. And new galleries are cropping up in different neighborhoods, and uh, it's it's very exciting. And Christina and Gertrude and... Um, you know, even Lenore Tawney, who lived here for a while, was part of a really supportive group. In fact, um, people, her friends kind of turned her on to art to help her cope with grief. So it's a very different, um, much more profound level. Yeah. Well, I think here, too, Jamie and I have talked about this a lot. Even if you're a transplant or you're from here, if you're in the art and music world and you're over 40 and you've been here a long time, you know everyone. And if you <laughs> exactly. don't know them, there's a six degree of separation. Exactly. Yeah, you know. That's certainly true. Well, we're, we have a final reading from uh, Donna's book here. This is a New York artist, actually, someone that uh, I kind of knew in passing, Louise Nevelson, uh, who is actually one of the best remembered, yes. I would say, of, of the artists in this book. So let's hear this quick passage uh, with music from uh, Jamie Branch, the trumpeter from Chicago. Louise Nevelson was everywhere, and then she was nowhere. Would Nevelson have been able to draw on her sense of the mutable nature of reality and taken a philosophical view if she could have known how quickly and completely she was forgotten after her death? After Lori Lyle's biography came out, there was silence. No one else in the public square was critiquing Nevelson and assessing her contribution to modern art. There were no major retrospective exhibitions. No one found her life alluring enough for fiction or film. Her work was rarely reproduced. Museums put her large installations in storage. Perhaps they are too difficult to maintain. Imagine the tedium of dusting every edge and corner. New books about American art, modern art, abstract sculpture, assemblage, installation art, all spheres in which Nevelson was a pioneering and driving force, omitted her entirely or relegated her to one inadequate, often condescending mention. As Nevelson was eclipsed, George O'Keefe ascended. Book after book documented and analyzed her life and work from the stunning nude photographs taken by her husband, Alfred Stieglitz, to lush reproductions of her paintings to photographs of her desert refuge. Hunger for all things O'Keeffe sustains a veritable industry, and an entire museum devoted to the sainted artist of the Southwest was erected in Santa Fe, New Mexico. O'Keeffe's sunlit paintings waxed, Nevelson's lunar sculptures waned, and Frida Kahlo had her revenge. Like O'Keeffe, she became a mainstream emblem of female creativity, albeit as a martyr to pain and betrayal. Her life of physical agony and psychological anguish, of great courage and trailblazing artistry, of audacious and indelible self-portraits was celebrated in a torrent of beautiful and affecting books and in an acclaimed film. Like the forgotten Nevelson, Kahlo was a living work of art, with her crown of braids, elaborate earrings, embroidered blouses, and great ruffled skirts. But Kahlo is enshrined, Nevelson obliterated. She was a bird of rare plumage, wrote master playwright Edward Elby, a close friend of Louise Nevelson for more than 20 years. What did he think of Nevelson's erasure? In 2001, Elby wrote a play in homage to the sculpture titled Occupant, a work of exquisite empathy and dark, knowing humor. It's a duet for two characters, the man, 40s, pleasant, and Nevelson, who is, quote, much like the later photographs. And as stage directions explain, encased in a costume, quote-unquote, cage. As the play begins, the man starts to introduce her, and Nevelson interrupts. Look, dear, everybody knows who I am. He demurs, time passes. You're not as recognizable now as you were. Nevelson says, you're kidding. The man then has the unenviable task of explaining that today few people know who she is. She bristles, 
She laughs. She exclaims, All right, so I'm invisible, or I don't exist. Which do you want? He tells her that more people know what she looks like than what she did. You're a very famous image, Louise. You were. And that was a reading from Donna Siemens' Identity Unknown about Louise Nevelson, an artist that was certainly very popular right through the late 80s, known for her constructions, known for her use of scrap wood, a uh, I believe she received the National Medal of Honor from Ronald Reagan, she didn't did. she? She did, so, indeed. <laughs> so it's, it's hard to, for me to, when I read this passage, and, and I remember her from the art scene in New York City, uh, I, I found it difficult to square the idea that she was unknown oh. with, with, my, with my recollections exactly. of her. So why did you choose this, this artist and not someone such as, I'll just throw out there, Alice Neal, who's, who's enjoyed a, a late career revival? Why, she why has. Her? Well, um, first, I just want to thank you for that. these readings, which are beautiful, and that last one with the mute jazz. Oh, my God, my heart lifts. Um, also, we have another thing in common. My mother is an artist, too. Oh, yes. Yes. So growing up, Louise Nevelson was one of my heroes. I loved her work. I saw it early on. I was a very fortunate child to be taken to museums in New York as, as, a, as a little thing. And um, her work just really wowed me. It was a big influence on me. And she was a superstar. I mean, she was everywhere. Yeah. A fashion magazine. New York Times, on television. On the front cover of Interview front Magazine. Cover of Interview magazine. Yes, yeah. um, yep. She was on the Dick Cavett Show. I mean, she was everywhere. And I thought, well, this is a woman artist. This is how it is. And then um, by the time I was in art school, I mean, Nevelson died in 88, I believe. I would say 87, 88? Uh, 1988. She was 89 years old. You know, she was a late bloomer. She yes. did not achieve mm-hmm. fame until she was in her 50s. Um, she was very flamboyant. I mean, I have a lot of theories about what happened to Louise Nevelson. But the real seed of this book was me um, coming to Booklist after having gone through art school and then um, also getting an English degree and um, reviewing lots of art books and seeing books come in that would say things like American sculpture. I'm like, oh, great. What pieces of Louise Nevelson am I going to find in this book? I, I'm so excited. And I open the book and there's no mention of Louise Nevelson. I mean, this really happened. Surveys of modern sculpture, surveys of American art. And she was she faded just out. faded that, out. I yeah. mean, she died when she was alive. She was everywhere, as the quote you just um, played. And that shocked me, and that was very upsetting to me. And so this was the first essay I wrote. And lots of people remember her if they were around in those years or if they're very, de- you know, art historians. But lots of other people, and I asked people, I did a lot of, invol- you know, sort of, casual polling about this book. Have you ever heard of so-and-so? And people I know who go to museums, they would say, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure who that is. And if I describe her work, they're like, oh, I think I've seen that. But that erasure, um, not that it doesn't happen with male artists, of course it does, but her case sort of was the catalyst for me to just ask about why some people last and why some people don't. And to feel that we're just not, as women, allowed to be part of the pantheon of American artists. There can only be room for one or two. And I think in a way that Louise Nevelson's flamboyance, her, she was so tough. She was so gutsy with her cigarellos and bossing people around. And, you know, she was never, again, sort of a saintly figure that you could safely leave in the desert. Um, I think <laughs> there was a lot like, and you know who I'm talking about, whose work I love and absolutely respect. But um, I think Louise became such a character, and that's what Elbert Edward Albee wrote about in his play that um, she was that was it she's off the stage we're gone make room for some better behaved people 
Well, let me ask you a question. Would she have lasted better in the public memory if with her flamboyance and if with her attitude she had been an Anna Winter figure working in fashion? Oh, sure, sure. Something more commercial? Yes. She looks like a fashion designer. Oh, and they loved her. Yeah. Halston loved her. I mean, they gave her clothes. She, you know, in the early years couldn't afford anything. And um, it's true because she insisted on being an abstract sculptor, insisted on building monumental works that took up entire rooms and, and worked with steel. You know, she has many outdoor public sculptures. And she would say, you know, to me, steel is like butter. And she would boss these guys around. <laughs> she got these fabrication. There's a series of photographs of her marching around. You can just hear her going, okay, sweetie, do this for me, pick that up, put that over here. Um, so she, you know, a movie star, she would never have been forgotten, but mm-hmm. she was in a world where this just was, you know, enough. They just, uh, we had enough of her. But one, to that point, it, it should be pointed out, because her work was so large, a lot of it was so large, and because some of it is public, a lot of people who have made monumental art, a lot of people who have made public art have been forgotten. That's that, true. That is a knock against someone because you can't take it and bring it to somewhere else and redisplay it. It's site-specific. And unfortunately, as we all know, public art, even public art in, in this city, which there's an enormous amount of, I dare you to walk. Her. Well, right. I, <laughs> I, but I dare you to walk through Grant Park and tell me who the artists are who have done the sculptures, done the, the, the music sculpture in Grant Park, who designed you know any number no, of the figures right. there. Uh, that, that I is, dated one of them, so I... Well... Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the inside story. Columbus 7. <laughs> but I mean, you... Uh, that, that is something that we don't really think about. Pe- people that work on large scale, unless um, they're architects or unless they've done something like Spiral Jetty that's so mythic and so monumental that everybody uh, talks Picasso. about it. Right, or, you know, Guernica, right. But even that can be moved. I mean, that's a, that's a movable piece. The Picasso? It, it, the Guernica. I think you're been. talking about the one oh, in the, City the, Hall. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's not movable. But people also know Pablo Picasso because yeah, he, right. he's done a number of other things. But I mean, people that do giant, massive works, I mean, even I would say Richard Stella is going to, it's going to be a struggle to remember that guy because his work is just so huge. Yeah. Someone like Anselm Kiefer, uh, you're also going to struggle <laughs> to remember him because his paintings are kind of awful. Oh, but, yeah. but, also, <laughs> but also because, you know, they're, they're large, they're huge, they take up entire rooms and they take gallery that that is a knock against someone if they're not doing stuff that is well louise precise. did many many small sculptures and really intricate and beautiful works that people do own um and they used to i mean when i first moved to chicago heard uh, there was a huge piece of hers on display now i imagine these are works that require some care and attention um because they're so intricate i mean i just thought of dusting one of those which is like mm. crazy but um still they're they're works of immense power even the smaller um in, interior works so i think there's um something else going on with her i yeah. never heard of her and I, I mean i'm no i no art scholar but <laughs> I mean, I, I do go to a lot of shows. I mean, I go to everything at the MCA. I go to a lot of stuff at the artists too. And then we, and it's funny because now that I I work and live on the South Side, it's I go to a lot of local shows yeah. now. So I don't go to the museums as much. But it's nice. And and I think what Jamie said too, it, like we do shows here at this studio at the CoPro, and the people that present art here, the people that participate, um, I help out and you know kind of work the shows with Jamie and some other people. You know, it's a very welcoming diverse i mean you walk into this place on a saturday night when there's an opening or friday night and you've got people from all walks there's tons of women showing we have um there's current show up i would say is yeah there's seniors current the current show i think is uh eight women i think there's only one one or two male artists Mm. in the show i believe and i think that's um it's really cool but then i'm also in a bubble right so it's like if 
you know, if I lived in Minnetonk, Minnesota, yeah. I probably never heard of any of these yeah. women, you know, or, you know, maybe not even many famous men, you know, and I think when, when you're immersed in this stuff, um, it becomes more of a unknown thing for us than it would be for someone else and right. like and but i i'd never heard of her and so see that's but I'm a so Chicago interesting guy, to me so, right yeah. but, but it makes perfect sense and that's why i really wanted to write this book and to tell these stories in a way that i would hope anyone could pick up this book and read i mean nothing makes me happier than i agree and this isn't for art historians right. you don't have to be well versed no, and, and the stories are fascinating and especially especially if you're a chicago person um, because, you know, we are, uh, I think in the arts, we are the second city. I don't think we are in anything else. We're all really staunch Chicago yes, supporters indeed. on the show. <laughs> My wife's also a New York transplant. She moved here and fell in love. And, you know, I think that we, by all the artists in the book, but you don't have to be a feminist. You don't have to be an art historian. It's just a great way to learn about culture. What I've always liked about this book is it was not full of jargon. You know, whenever oh, I think of an art you. history book, oh, I say, my God. boy, I would really like some more jargon. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd really, I'd really like it to be very difficult to read. And, and I, you know, yeah. no, I mean, it's a very clear read. And it again, this is a book um, for the layman. It's a book to introduce people to artists. And it's a book to about, about seven people that you've probably not heard of. Or if you uh, are in the art community, you might have heard of a couple of them. But I would admit that, you know, of the, the majority of them, and I'm fairly well up on it, I, I had only heard of one or two. Um, but I mean, what I think, I think we need to end the show with, what's the corrective to this? This is an interesting look at people who have been forgotten, but what happens to the next generation of women artists who are out there? We've, we've noted that there's a lot more attention being given to this subject. We've noticed that people from Linda Nochlin or the Gorilla Girls have come out and, and made a point that, uh, you know, one of the best ways to get in the Museum of Modern Art is to be naked, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a slight rib on the sculptures there. What, what has to happen for young female artists that are working today to be considered up there with the male artists working today? Well, I think things have vastly improved, and I think part of the reason is we have a lot more women writing about art. We have a lot more women arts journalists and critics, more uh, women teaching. So I think it's a conversation. It um, should be a really inclusive conversation so that people come see new artists and share. I mean, now with online, with all the blogs and online, and you know, even a um, radio station like this, I mean, we're really cracking things open so much. So I think the more conversation, the more shared images. You know, if you go on Pinterest, you can find all sorts of people posting women's art and sharing it. And so there's just a lot more opportunities to um, to recognize and, and enthuse about work and talk about it and question it and, and um, try to find its antecedents. I mean, it's always interesting to look back if you see a new artist, you know, who does she remind you of? And uh, we need some lineages of women artists um, in art history the way we do with male artists. So I think that conversation, that scholarship is all really definitely taking place. And um, and also specifically in Chicago to really talk about uh, Midwest art, Chicago art, and, and the um, you know, the styles that grew here out of this city as opposed to L.A. and New York. I mean, they're all important. They're all interesting. But just to recognize that larger continuity, um, I think, is really exciting and positive. 
want to mention that the book we've been talking about, we've been talking with Donna Seaman, Identity Unknown. It is out from Bloomsbury Press. If you want more information on this book, you can go to your local library or visit bloomsbury.co.uk. Donna, you're also going to be at the Printer's Row Literary Festival, which is June 10th and 11th, 2017. Am I correct on that? If you want more information on that, you can go to printersrowlitfest.org. That is printersrowlitfest.org. We are out of time. We'll be back next week with another edition of I-94. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. Thanks so much. Keep on reading. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Chicago author Donna Seaman with readings from her book, Identity Unknown, published by Bloomsbury. Music by Justin Cholowa and Jamie Branch. Incidental music from the International Anthem Recording Company Archive, both used with kind permission. This episode aired on May 21, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Lori Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94, visit lumpenradio.com.